Today on Between the Lines, one of the country's most respected rabbis, Rabbi David Wolpe. I'm Barry Kibrick. Rabbi Wolpe was named the number one pulpit rabbi in America by Newsweek magazine. As a teacher at UCLA and leader of his congregation at the Sinai Temple of Los Angeles, his moving words have reached out across all religions. With his recent book, Why Faith Matters, he takes readers of all denominations on a journey to the origins and nature of faith and the role it plays in modern life. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old. And it was. You do, need to, need, you do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. The characters, the heroes in this book, are seekers of truth in, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. You don't get a chance to really talk about what's real. And that is the first Rabbi David Wolpe, what a thrill to have you here. Thank you Thank for you. joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm going to begin because this is a book, Why Faith Matters. And as you open it up, you say, my journey to faith was first a journey from faith. And yeah. doubt right. played a big role of leading you to this particular part of your life. Well, I, I had the experience, like a lot of people, I think, of growing up, believing sort of unreflectedly. That is, I didn't really think very much about it. You know, I grew up in a world where you just, you heard stories about God, you heard Bible stories, and I believed, and I believed without thinking. And then one day, I was 12 years old. I saw a movie about the Holocaust. I saw bodies being shoveled into pits. And the enormity of the evil for a 12-year-old who really never saw anything evil other than, you know, demons and goblins in nursery tales just immediately drained the sanctity from the world. Like there was nothing left of the childish belief that I grew up with. And so for me, in part, one of the sort of intersecting stories of the book is the way that you gradually rebuild uh, a much deeper and more sophisticated faith when you lose that childish childhood faith that sooner or later bumps up against the reality of the world. You know, you, you quote Paul Tillich, who says, doubt right. isn't the opposite of faith. Right. In, in, in the exact words, it is an element of faith. And from what I'm hearing, it may be one of the key elements of faith is doubt. I think that that's true. Doubt in a, in a certain way and questioning in a certain way, in the same sense that there are questions and doubts that you have about relationships that make them closer. So you say um, to your spouse, you know, what is it that you love about me? And that's a question that can draw someone closer. But there are questions that can also push people apart. And there are doubts and questions that can draw faith into your life. And there are doubts and questions that can push faith away. And so I think if you search seriously and honestly and you seek to connect to other souls and understand them, that's part of faith. And anybody who says that a faithful person has no questions, it seems to me their faith must be very brittle because deep faith can move with questions in the world, and it's good for it to do so. Well, if I'm correct, even the word Israel, doesn't it mean to yes. wrestle with God? It does. It what is wrestling right. with God but questioning faith constantly? Exactly so. It's, yes, God wrestling, um, which is a... Uh, 
exactly that. And when Israel, that is the biblical character Jacob, when he wrestles with God and gets the name, what happens is after that encounter with the angel, he limps, he's wounded, because there are ways that we come to God, not only through our strengths, but also through our wounds. And it is the difficulties and the disappointments and the doubts of life that can, that can bring you closer. Now, you said the correct questions, though. They, they, that is important. And it's important even as you play out the Socratic method. Right. It's not just a question, but it's how deep you explore that question. How then... If a person is in this searching mode, how do they know huh. how to question? That's a great uh, question. It's a great question. <laughs> and actually, here's a story that's not in the book, but it's a wonderful story. There was of a, of a uh, rabbi who was walking with his disciples, and uh, he saw a group of his former students, and he said to them, you see those students? He says, they're almost dead. And they said, what do you mean they're almost dead? He said, well, they don't ask questions anymore. He said, they don't fight. They don't argue. They're not alive. And one of his, they, then they walked on for a little while. And one of his students said, Rabbi, how do we know that we're not dead? And he said, because you asked. And there is something in the desire to know the state of your own soul and the constant pushing and the not resting that really, that is, I think, at the root of all this. The first question in the Bible is when God says to Adam, where are you? And that's the question that God asks us at every moment in our lives. And if you take that question and you ask yourself, then I think you're on a path to faith. One of the things that inspired you to go this way was you've been, as you write in the book, you were looking at a, a recent spat of anti-faith type yes. of material, whether it be atheistic or just secular and things like that. And sometimes we have to be careful when we draw these lines. Right. I know I, I, I've had discussions with people where I would say, you know, I don't think that, you know, he may describe himself as right. a secular humanist, but when you really get to know him, he's just using the wrong description. But you use these words, and I think part of this is at the root of this, and I want to use it. You say cynicism makes a good sword, but a poor shield, because that's what a lot of the people are. They're being cynical right. about it. And I thought, what a great analogy. I wanted you to share that with our viewers, how you can thrust with cynicism, right. but you can't protect. No, you can't keep your soul. Um, I, I don't even want to say pure, but you can't keep your soul um, moving through this world if all you do is devalue and as you know, part of the book is, is a response to atheistic literature, and part of it is a response to certain challenges that I'm sure we'll talk about that I and my family have gone through over the past many years. And when something difficult happens to you in your life, if your only resource, your only spiritual resource is, you know, everything is stupid and everything is meaningless and everything is vanity, then you really are bereft. You're left with nothing. And so that's what I mean by cynicism is... It can be entertaining, it can be witty, it can be clever, but it's not deep. Well, you know, you, you talk about, in fact, this personal relationship and your own things. Let me, let me throw this out at you here. I, I think there's, again, this could lead us to that direction. The key to coexistence is not sameness, but recognition of something greater than all of us. Right. That is your underpinning to what faith is, is that there is this whether you, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to shape it, how 
a transcendence, something outside of ourselves, greater than ourselves, that if we are not all realizing, we have a tendency to think the human is the highest, and then the human rule and law, and we, in a sense, diminish ourselves rather than raise ourselves. So the coexistence and sameness point, which you um, mentioned and which is critical, you know, when, when you write a book, so people always say to you, okay, what's different about your book? There are always going to be books on the same topic. What's different about yours? So part of what I think makes it different is, first of all, that it's a book by a rabbi that has a forward by an evangelical minister, Rick Warren, um, of Saddleback Church, Purpose Driven Life. That's not a usual thing. And the reason that that's so is that this book tries to identify what people of faith not people of a specific faith, but rather people of faith understand about the world and share about the world. And that's why I said that it's not sameness. The recognition of transcendence, you may translate it into different terms than I do. And another tradition may see it in still different terms. But there are certain attitudes, orientations, ideas that people of faith share that the book tries to identify and make clear that I think are tremendously important, not only for the individual, but also for the society. Well, then I'm going to start now probing into even deeper, okay? You said about things in your own life. There's lots of things in your life woven through here. Some of it I want to talk to later about what your wife observed and some of it what I've observed in, in this right now. And one of them was your own battle with cancer. And at a time you are I don't know if it, we call it last rites, but you were consulting right. or consoling another cancer patient yes. who was not doing well, who right. was going towards the light, so to speak. Yes. And you used these words, I ventured that everything a human being was, the hopes, dreams, the love and gifts, could not completely disappear. And we just lost a, a cousin recently, and I can't help but keep thinking of those words because no matter how much faith we have, where is this going? Where is right. that soul m- moving to? Right. You know it's not disappearing. Yeah. I right. was just curious. Did you have any idea of so, where it might be wandering? You know, it's funny. <laughs> I, um, people, people ask that a lot. Like, and, and, and the idea that heaven, before we came into this world, we couldn't have imagined what this world was like. And similarly, in this world, who can imagine what heaven would be like? I quote in the book Mark Twain, in his book, Letters from Earth, he says, people think when they go to heaven, they're going to lie on green fields and listen to harp music. He says, I wouldn't want to do it for five minutes while you're alive, <laughs> but you think you'll be happy doing it for the rest of eternity after you die. Um, I don't know what a world beyond this could possibly be like. Uh, certainly my intellectual capacities, any person's, are much too limited to imagine a world. But it is a core belief in either the human being or in God or both, that, that you don't disappear. I don't believe that you're just a collection of chemicals. I don't believe it. There's something about you that partakes of that transcendence that is greater. And that's the core, the spark that I think lives on, although I can't tell you how. Um, I tell the story in the book of the, the parable of twins in a womb, um, that, uh, that is told in a, in a book on mourning in the Jewish tradition, um, that is mourning grieving. Uh, he says, imagine twins in a womb, and one of them believes there's a world outside the womb, 
And the other thinks the first one's ridiculous. He says, what do you mean there's a world outside here? We've never seen another world. We've never experienced another world. He says, now imagine the believer is born. Outside, everybody's celebrating a birth. But in the womb, his sibling is mourning a death. He said, and that's what happens when people die. It's a birth to a world that we can't imagine. And that's the image that I carry in my mind when I, when I see, as I often do as a rabbi, when I see people die. Rabbi, that reminds me, I had on a guest, John O'Donoghue, who tells almost a similar story about you know, how birth if you were perceiving it as the person in the womb, it's really like a death. Right. And you even use Nabokov. Is right. that, yes. Life is such a remarkable surprise. Why should death be less of a surprise? Yes. And, and, that, and that also speaks to who Nabokov was, that is, that he found life a surprise. And part of faith is not moving through life dulled to it. There are people who you meet who, if you say life is such a surprise, they'll go, what's surprising about it? But, but if you move through life alive, and one of the blessings, if I can put it that way, of surviving a life-threatening illness is that life seems newly drenched in color, you know, and beautiful anew. If you see that wonder, it helps then assume that, you know, the wonders don't end here. Oh, if only all of us uh, who... I, if I... Oof, I'm, right. I'm going to be terrible because I can't remember. But someone said, if only all of us can die a little or yes. just experience that death a little bit, we would be better off. Yes, the trick is to do it and still be alive, yes. right? <laughs> if you do it permanently. It's yes. Like, but that there, I saw not only with our own experience, um, but also with the people whom I've seen who've gone through this, that it's not true for everyone, but if you can hold inside you that little bit of what it's like to lose everything you love, um, it does help you love. It's Joseph M. Wanted with the Constitutionalist Politics. Tune in for the upcoming episode for May 4. Issue, never the issue, as well as guest Peter Serafin. Rosemary Downer, Don Gallade, Gista the Rapper, Cy Young, Jason Perry, and upcoming Jack Hagar, Andrew Thorpe King, Trent Rock, Ed Temple, Chris Morehouse, and more. Please tune in to Constitutionalist Politics. God bless. You know, I'm going to just even probe that a little deeper because you used... And I've never heard of the fellow before. Teilhard de Chardin? Yes. Teilhard de Chardin. Teilhard de Chardin. He was a Protestant theologian. And he says something very beautiful. This is what he says. I'm going to quote it exactly. We are not physical creatures having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual creatures having a physical experience. I can't help but think that follows just what we're talking about. It does. Exactly so. So let me, I mean... In my own experience, part of what motivates this book, there are really two different things that moved me to the book. One is the intellectual question about faith and the assault on faith in, in the books of lots of different uh, thinkers lately. And the other was the experience of going through cancer. Um, my wife had cancer. Then I had a brain tumor. I survived that. And then I had lymphoma two years ago and just finished chemo last year, right before I started the book. In fact, I'll tell you, a, 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 seems to me a funny story. I said to my wife one day, you know, I, I had read this edit, editorial by uh, 
one of the atheist thinkers, and it really infuriated me. And I said to my wife six months later, as I was almost done with the book, I said, you know when this book started? It started the day I read that editorial. And my wife smiled very sweetly at me, and she said, no, dear, it didn't. It actually started the day you finished chemo. She said, that's when you started to talk about the book. And I didn't even realize that, but that you survive that and you feel your difference between your body and your spirit and what the cancer means to your life, those sorts of things can push you away from faith. But, but I think they serve much better and um, much more meaningfully to draw you closer to it if you let them. You know, your wife, yeah. like my wife, sheds obviously a lot of light on yes, things that we does. don't always see. And, and I know mine does too. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was some light that your wife shed on you. And I think it's important because again, I think it, it helps center us where you're coming from. And that was, I, I, I don't know if it was the same incident when you were consulting this uh, no, other it case. Was a different, it was a different it was case, a different but case. you had right. in your own sense, a self, a sense of unworthiness, right. that you were not able to take on the responsibilities of being a spiritual leader. Right. And I don't, don't remember the exact words, but it was something as if she was able to tell you it was God coming through right. you. You did right. not have to bear right. that responsibility. That was exactly it. I was doing what is equivalent of last rites. It's called in Hebrew vidui for someone. It was the first time I'd ever done it. This person was dying and I didn't know them. And I came home and she said, how was it? And I said, it was terrible because I, I, I felt like a fraud. I mean, who am I to be ushering this soul into eternity? I'm just me. And she said, you, you're right, you are unworthy. She said, anyone would be, but it's okay because you didn't do it. It was done through you. And the moment she said that, I realized that actually, even though it seems like I was being humble, oh, I'm not worthy, the truth is I was letting my own ego get in the way of something much greater than me, which is exactly what you said the God who works through you in the world. And it wasn't about me at all. It was actually about God and about this woman. Well, and this I then think leads to this other premise. You wrote this because the people that were writing books were almost saying that you are either a reasonable human yes. or you have faith. Right, As That's if right. you know, you're, and you say yeah. here, and, and these are important words, reason and faith are not enemies. Yeah. Repress faith and reason too goes out the window. Exactly. Explain that because I think that's yeah. what happens to so many people. They say, listen, how can you live in the 21st century, know all that we know, and still, quote unquote, say you have faith? I'll, I'll, there's a historical answer and a personal answer, and I'll give them both real quickly. Historically, in the regimes like the communist regime where they repressed faith, their science was messed up, their economics was messed up. In other words, they couldn't reason properly because they repressed people's deepest moral instincts. And personally, what we base our life on is not reason. If you tell me how important it is to be a good person, and I say to you, why? Give me a reasonable argument. Sooner or later, you're gonna to get to just cause it's important to be a good person. And I'm gonna to say to you exactly, the way you orient your soul in this world is not about reason, it's about faith. Now, maybe your faith is in you know goodness, but it's still faith. And what I would say is that goodness is not sufficient. It has to have a source. Now the source, historically, you even talk a little bit about it when you talk about the gender roles yes. in religion, because 
the source, and, and I've, I've always, when I, when I first became aware of this, I found it sort of humorous, but it's so true. The, one of the, the key concepts of the reason for organized religion was to sort of tame the male no beast. Doubt. And no it, it was because man left to his own device, and if you really looked at a natural state, he'd be still chewing on raw meat and clubbing women. You know, I mean, that's... <laughs> what his nature would have led him to. And yet at the same time, inherent in us, and this is the point you make, is this hunger for this other level of consciousness. Right, there's no, I I think both things are true, which is there is clearly, there are many distinctions, but I think there's also a spiritual distinction between the way women and men function generally. I mean, there are lots of exceptions on both sides, Um, but also there is this, deep yearning. It's, I mean, it's, it's both a need and also something more poetic and beautiful, a yearning for another person to connect to in your life so that you can live better. Not just so that you won't be alone, although that's a lot of it, but also, you know, I say often to couples because I counsel couples who come and are ready to be married that sometimes people make the mistake of finding somebody that they think will make them happy. But really what you wanna do is find somebody who will make you better. And if you find someone who makes you better, ultimately you'll be happy. But if you find someone who doesn't make you better, who just you know, can celebrate with you, you're gonna be miserable because there is a desire in us for others to bring out that which is best. So. Wow, what great advice that is. They don't take it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but still, I give the advice. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> Rabbi, let me yeah. ask one more thing. I'm going to bring out this, it's, you call it the receptivity of the soul. Yes. And it's funny. I had to go through it twice because, you know, you left it hanging. Mm. You didn't really, and, and I know that that's one right. of the great leading yes. questions to go for right. because it sits there, and I was looking, right. and there wasn't much more to to go on. So I thought, what a great chance for you to really elaborate that concept. Here's uh, here's a story again that I didn't tell in the book, but that's- uh, That's what this show is, by the way, all about. You got a perfect You can can buy the book for the stories in the book, but you have to turn into Barry's show for the stories that aren't in the book. Um, The, uh, this is a story, and actually part of the reason I didn't is it's, you have to see it in part. A friend of mine in Israel went to a famous mystic, a class of a famous mystic. And he knew this class had been running for years and years and years and years. So he went into the class and apparently there was a ritual with all new students that he didn't know. The mystic comes up to him and he held out an apple and he went to to grab for it and the mystic pulled it back. And so he thought, okay, tried again. The guy held out the apple and he went slowly to take it. And again, the mystic pulled it back. And finally he looked at the other students who told him the secret. So the third time the mystic held out the apple and he went like this and he dropped it in his hands. There is a certain humility, submission, and receptivity that you have to have in the world to open yourself up to God. You know, it's what they said about uh, the poet William Blake. Someone said about him to a friend of his, you know, Blake is cracked, like he was a little crazy. And his friend said, yes, but it's the kind of crack that lets in the light. And there are cracks inside all of us. The question is whether we acknowledge them and let in the light. It's a great Leonard Cohen song as well that says there's a crack in everything. That's how the light how the gets, light gets in. in. Well, there you go. Well, with this light, then, I want to ask you one more thing. Actually, it's not even a question. It's a statement that you wrote. Whatever you are charged to do in this world must be done. Mm-hmm. 
And that charge, again, seems to what one would call a mission, which implies on many levels that it does come from something outside yes. of this plane that we are right. familiar with. There were never, there's never been another person like you ever in history, and there never will be again. So if you don't do it, it won't get done. Um, you know, I mean, as, a, as a, the Kotzka Rebbe, who was a religious leader in the 18th century, said, if I spend my life being someone else, who will be me? You're the only you. So you have to carry out what it is you are here to do, because otherwise it's undone in this world. But that sense of what you have to do, right. that comes from, again, so many layers. And in fact, in some of our hectic world, it almost seems hard to have that humility it's, and that surrender it ability. Is. It's also because of all the distractions. But, but you have to think, you have to sort of create a cocoon around yourself enough to figure out what is my genuine purpose? What am I really here to do? Um, what can I do that someone else can't do? Um, what can I do for the people I love that no one else can do for them because I'm the person that they're closest to? I mean, these are they're questions that are dealt with, I know, in psychology and sociology and all different ways, but ultimately they're questions of faith, and they're one of the reasons why faith matters. Well, one of the people you quote in the book, a master Eckhart, Eckhart to yes. be exact, and as I said to a fellow John O'Donnell, a theologian, based a lot of his own mm -hmm. philosophies on it, and the words are this, if the only prayer you ever say in your entire life is thank you, it is sufficient. Rabbi, I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for joining us. Now, before Rabbi Wolpe leaves, I'd like to leave you with these words from Why Faith Matters. Faith, not blind or bigoted faith, but faith that pushes us to be better, to give more of ourselves, to see glimmers of transcendence scattered throughout our lives. Such faith is both an achievement and a gift. I'm Barry Kibrick. Faith is often that space between the lines. That's how it gets filled. Seek it, and it will be an achievement and also a gift. Thank you, Rabbi.